0: So this afternoon we're going to study in Luke chapter 6 verses 12 to 19, Luke chapter 6 verses 12 to 19 and before we read that I'll pray and we'll read our text. Father in heaven we give you thanks for your word, the holy scriptures, the very words of God. Father we pray that we would be given ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that are humble and obedient that we may do all that you have commanded us to do, and that we may love you as we ought. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, reading verses 12 to 19. In these days he, and that is Jesus, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples And chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and all the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Amen. May God bless that to us. So the very first thing I want you to do is to turn your Bibles in the Old Testament to the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 4. We'll just read the first five verses of Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths; for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks and Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, in each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I just want you to consider how that which we have just read, and chapter 6 will then lead on to, um, well, the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces woes, what you might call Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, although it's not necessarily the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Mark. I do think that Jesus, as a travelling preacher, probably taught pretty much the same things in many different places. And so you might, um, if let's say you were writing down what Jesus was saying, you might have heard him preach in one place, On one Saturday and you write down the sermon and then you go to another place on a different Saturday and you write down the sermon and you go, well, he's working from the same outline, but he's not preaching the same message, which is what many traveling preachers even today do. So chapter six is basically Luke's telling or recording of what we might call the Sermon on the Mount, although it's not necessarily the same preaching occasion as the same is on in the in the gospel of Matthew. But consider what we read there in Micah chapter 4 about the mountain of the house of the Lord being established as the highest of the mountains, peoples flowing to it and many nations coming and saying, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And just consider that what we're reading here is that Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. And there he prayed all night. And when he came down, there was a great crowd gathered, including not necessarily Jews. There were people from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. These were not Jewish nations or Jewish regions. These were basically, in your Old Testament, the regions of the Philistines. On the coastline of the Mediterranean Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea I should say it's not an ocean I'm not saying that what we're reading is a direct fulfillment of Micah chapter 4 I think Micah chapter 4 is basically all about the coming of the church the new covenant ministry of the church and people's being drawn to God by the power of preaching the gospel But I guess what I might be saying is that in Micah chapter four, that prophecy that we read has some kind of application to what we're reading here. And notice that the people go up the mountain to the house of the God of Jacob. And it's Jesus himself who has said that his body is the temple. Remember, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Those who are coming to Christ, whether they're aware of it or not, are coming to the house of God, to the temple of the Lord. Just moving forward through the text and, and I'm sort of, there's not necessarily one simple clear theme that's running through what we're studying today. It's, it's preparatory. It's sort of the bridging text between the works of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. But I'm just going to move forward through it and, and there'll be some comments to make and some applications to make as we read our way forward through it. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And, one, you know, just as soon as you read that, there's, there's so much to think about. Um, do not make the mistake when you think about Jesus of forgetting that he is truly human. Now, what, what am I trying to say here? What's the point that I'm trying to make? Right? He is truly human, he is truly divine. That which is human is human. That which is divine is divine. If you want to basically rest only on the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is God, the eternally begotten Son of God, having taken upon himself flesh. Well, then I want to ask you a question. Why would he bother praying? If if all you want to consider is his divinity, and his divinity is true, and this is a doctrine that I do not in any way deny I preach it at every given opportunity. Why would he go out to pray? If, if in his humanity he had complete and um, unhindered access to the knowledge of God, what would be the point of him praying? You see, he is truly human. He had reason to pray. And if ever anybody said to you, I prayed all night, you would, you would immediately think, well, something is pressing down heavily upon that person. Now, if I said to you, I prayed all night, I, I want you to be aware, I work all night. I'm awake all night. And when I say I prayed all night, whenever the same particular thing crossed my mind, I prayed for it while I was working. You know, I'm not claiming that I put in 12 hours of continuous nonstop prayer. I don't honestly believe that I would be capable of putting in 12 hours of continuous nonstop prayer, although perhaps at some point in my life, the Lord might put me in a circumstance where that happens. But in and of my own self, according to my knowledge of my own abilities, I don't think that I could put in 12 hours of continuous prayer. But Jesus goes up to pray. Now, there's another thing here. You know, the question often thrown at the, at, into the face of anyone who holds to Reformed or often it's called Calvinistic theology. Aren't we all just therefore automatons? Aren't we all just therefore there puppets on a string? Why would you bother praying? What's the point of it? Everything's going to happen and unfold according to the will of God. Why would you bother praying? Well, just by example, just think of this. Has there been any life lived on this earth that was more carefully spoken about before it was lived? You know, if you go through the Old Testament and all the prophecies that were told in Scripture point to Jesus, behold, the virgin shall conceive, etc., etc. Go all the way through. Jesus basically tells us that He is the servant. God demands that people hear the servant as they hear the voice of God. He is the servant who will reconcile many to God. He's the son of David who fulfills all the prophecies and promises that were given to and made through the person of David in the Psalms. Everything about his life was spoken of. He is the one who is pleasing to God. He's the son of man in Daniel chapter 7 who's to inherit everything that God created. He's the one who approaches God in his own righteousness in Daniel chapter 7 and inherits everything that God created. Everything about Jesus is in some way prophesied, spoken of directly, shown to us in types, etc., etc., etc. And yet, even so, he prays. He prays. He goes out to seek a place where he is alone and not to be distracted, and he prays. All night he continues in prayer to God. I would suggest that there's some kind of crisis happening in his life. You know, he he lived as we live. The scripture tells us he was tested like we are tested, yet without sin. You know, real people in their humanity go through real crises. And every step of his life, Jesus is walking towards crucifixion. Never forget it. He's walking towards false accusation. Never forget it. I mean, in terms of things that cause emotional pain, there's not much that goes deeper and hurts worse than the knife in the back of false accusation, especially when people believe the false accusation. That, that is one that hurts. It hurts every time. It hurts as it goes in and it hurts as it comes out and you won't forget the pain for quite a while. He's, every step of his life, he is walking towards a false trial and an execution as a wrongdoer in the very face of the people that he came to save. And so there's, there's this, I won't call it a crisis of faith. It's, it's more, I think, a crisis of obedience. I think the ultimate crisis of obedience happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, to your will, let your will be done. Or nevertheless, to your will, do I submit, was what Jesus prayed. Remember, he's, he's basically now at war with the religious authorities in his days. He kind of knows what's coming. He's not actually going to topple them, as it were. He's not going to lead a rebellion. He's not going to bring them down. God is going to hand him over to them. That they can have him put to death by the Romans, and the battle with the scribes and the Pharisees is increasing, not decreasing, and he himself is not decreasing that battle. So, this time is a time of some kind of personal crisis and a time when he does not want to take a false step. What's some what you know when, when you think about your life and you think about. The things that you feel you ought to do for God in, in obedience to the will of God. And you have a choice in front of you. There are times when you pray. And you pray seriously. Seeking to know the will of God. Seeking to know what to do. You see, he knows what he's going to do. Looking at verse 13. And when day came, he calls his, called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So he has a body of disciples. Disciples means simply people who are under the discipline and the teaching of a teacher. It doesn't mean that they're just hearing what the teacher is saying, but it means that they have placed themselves under his command. From his disciples, he calls 12 whom he sets apart as apostles. Apostle literally means a witness sent out. And if you, um, in that day and age, if you made someone your apostle, you have empowered that person to transact on your behalf. If I, if I send Joel out as my apostle, what I'm saying is, if he signs a contract in my name, I keep that contract. And if you assault Joel in my name, you're assaulting me and we're going to go to war. Jesus takes 12 disciples. He calls them apostles. We then get the names. I... Honestly, I've read many sermons from preachers. As you know, I read and I listen to a whole lot of teaching. And there are teachers who are good enough to go through the apostles and turn this into 12 sermons. They they really are. And they're actually not too boring. And they're actually able to draw together so many little details from all of scripture that maybe you've read at some time or other, but you forgot that you ever read them. They're able to do this and they're able to draw this all together and preach a series of sermons, one per apostle. I'm not that preacher. <laughs> and being someone who also works full time, and, and, and I'm not complaining about this, but I honestly don't have the time to draw together that kind of sermon. It, it, to draw together that kind of sermon, you've actually got to be able to put more hours into it than I have. So let's just speak generally concerning the apostles. Specifically, he chose 12. Why? Why? Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. Is he replacing the 12 tribes of Israel? Not really. That's not what is happening. He is now establishing the true tribes of Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, there are a whole lot of Judahites. All right. A whole lot of people of the tribe of Judah who were Jews, but they weren't all saved. There are a whole lot of people who were Simeonites among the Jews and they weren't all saved. And there are a whole lot of people who were Ephraimites among the Jews and they weren't all saved. Okay, the church was in a way hidden in the nation of Israel. It was under the cover of the nation of Israel. He's not. It's not to be thought of that Jesus is replacing the tribes of Israel. Think of it this way. His ministry is drawing out the true israelites the israelites indeed the israelites who are in a living loving relationship with god it was perfectly possible just as it's possible today to be a church member and not be a christian it was perfectly possible to be a member of the jewish nation and not be a christian he's drawing out he, he the picture here is that he's drawing the true israel out of greater israel And so he draws out 12 men. What else do we know about those men? Well, as we read earlier in Acts chapter 4 and at verse 13, now that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. No one was drawn out according to merit. No one was drawn out because he was the hero of the future. You know, that... It doesn't so much happen these days, I I realise, because the education system is um, wed to the idea of equality and you're not supposed to pick someone out and say, "This this one seems to be special and this one has enormous potential. But back in the day, and you don't have to go too far back, back in the day, for example, when I was in high school and, you know... It was not unusual for teachers to basically pick out some kids and say these kids have got the future before them. The world is at their feet. They're smart, polite, intelligent. They're well presented. These kids are going to go places. That's not the basis on which Jesus chose. Even in the book of Acts, even after they're now full-blown, open, preaching, ministering Christians, they were uneducated and common men. You know, they hadn't been to a formal seminary. They hadn't been to a formal university. They didn't have a doctorate in philosophy or any other um, field of study. And I'm I'm not actually belittling fields of study and I'm not belittling qualifications. And, you know, if, if you came to me, if one of you young men came to me and said, I feel called to the ministry, I'd say, well, you're called to study and you actually probably need to get formal training so that you can do this better than I do this. OK, and, and we can think of one young guy that we all know who who is in Bible college right now for that very purpose. I'm not saying I sent him there, although when he asked me about it, I said to him, go and get formal training, go and learn the languages, go and learn some church history. All right. It, it doesn't almost it almost doesn't matter what else you get out of it, because I know you've studied and read an awful lot of theology. But you need you need to have the tools at hand to do the job Better as well as you can possibly do it. But these men, they're they're common, they're uneducated and they're able now, in the book of Acts at chapter 4 at least, by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, they're able to mix it with the educated and uncommon. You know, they're able to mix it with the elites. They've got the wisdom of God. They've got the power of of the Holy Spirit. And even those who hated the church were forced in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, they were forced to recognise that these men had been with Jesus. They recognised that these men had been with Jesus. And so Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 16, says to the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These men have been chosen by Jesus to be transformed into apostles. They were already disciples. They're going to be apostles. Common men. And when you think about the crisis, I I spoke of Jesus praying all night and that may well indicate a personal crisis. He knew all along that one of these 12 that he was going to pick was going to be a faithless traitor. He knew all along Someone He knew all along that he was going to choose one as a close and personal friend and train, as all other 11 men were trained, he knew all along that that one was going to betray him and be a tool in the hands of the devil in order to get him on a cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He chose Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so there you have what it was that was bringing Jesus to the point where he felt the need to pray all night. He knew the war was ongoing. He knew that he'd made enemies amongst people who could manipulate things in order to get him killed. He knew that he had to go through with this and that he had to appoint 12 apostles. And he knew that one of those 12 had to be the traitor who was going to bring him to his death. Yet he continues. He prays and he obeys. And he came down, verse seventeen, with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. So now, Sidon, sorry. So now you've got three groups of people. You've got Jesus. He came down with them. Then would be the 12, Jesus, the apostles. Then you have a great crowd of his disciples, many who are following him, many who are under his instruction, many who were seeking to be his servants. And then you have a great multitude of people, Jew and probably non-Jew alike, people from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with an unclean spirit were cured, or with unclean spirits, I'm sorry, were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Interesting, Luke here gives us two categories of those who suffer. There were those who were coming to be healed of their diseases, and there were those who were troubled with unclean spirits. Yet all were cured, which implies that in some way the troubles were similar. The questions often asked concerning healings and concerning exorcisms, do they happen today? Should they happen today? Should we be conducting exorcisms, casting out, unclean spirits well my answer is in a way yes and my answer is in a way no what do i mean well first of all none of us are jesus and we're not living in the age of um, the establishment of the church where the power of god's holy spirit was made clear through signs and assigned ministry We're not living in that time. Jesus has come down off the mountain. He's going to start preaching and teaching. The authority that he preaches and teaches under and with is demonstrated in the power that comes out from him in the healing of diseases and in the curing of people who are troubled by unclean spirits. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. Now, the scripture tells us that if you want to think about the way that humanity can be categorised, there's really only two kinds. Really, there are those who are in Adam and those who are in Adam are under the power of Satan. It's as simple as that. They are under the power of Satan. If you want to say, well, are some more so than others? The answer is obviously yes. There are obviously some who are more so under the power of Satan than others. There are some who would who would definitely qualify for what we call demon possession all who are outside of christ are under the power of satan and there are those who are in christ and they are under the power of the holy spirit it's as simple as that they are either in adam and under the power of satan or they are in christ and under the power of the holy spirit where would i get some support for the idea that all are under the power of satan i'd take it from acts chapter 26 as a primary text if you want to turn there with me just for a moment Paul, speaking of his conversion in Acts chapter 26, testifies. And when we had all fallen to the ground, so he's on the road to Damascus, verse 14, Acts twenty-six fourteen. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For those who are converted at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, what is the description of them? They're in darkness and they are under the power of Satan. If they receive the word with faith, seeking the forgiveness of their sins, where do they go? They go from darkness to light. They go from the power of Satan to the power of God. Or if we want to turn to 1 John. 1st John and the last chapter of 1st John which is chapter 5 verse 19 1st John 5 19 we know that we are from God so he's writing to Christians a Christian leader an apostle writing to Christians we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and you've got to put a little bit of thought of, into that I mean who runs the world? Who controls the world? Who has power over everything upon the earth? And the answer to that question is God and only God. So what does the Apostle John mean when he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? Well, the world. This is the same Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. And in the in the Gospel of John, we're told, do not be surprised if the world hates you because it first hated me. That same world that hates Jesus is under the power of the evil one, or in the power of the evil one. And so everyone who is outside of Christ is under the power of Satan. Even today, even now, in the world around about us, how are they set free from the power of Satan? The preaching of the gospel. By faith, they receive Christ. By faith, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. By faith, they are giving a living and obedient heart that loves God and seeks to grow in obedience to God. And so every true conversion is to a greater or a lesser degree some kind of exorcism. It's a casting out of the devil. I personally believe and, um, you know, we won't go back and review a whole other sermon that I know I've preached in time past. I personally believe that every exorcism that we see in the ministry of Jesus is a visible conversion. It's a visible conversion. It's basically God showing us that conforming yourself to the word of Jesus sets you free from the power of Satan. A conversion is in a way totally invisible. It works from the inside out and makes itself visible in the acts that a person does. That's that's what it's like for us these days but in the ministry of jesus exorcisms were part of the sign ministry of jesus the sign of his power the sign of his authority the sign of that which he was speak that that which he was speaking is truth and an exorcism becomes a visible conversion this is a person who was totally under the power of satan and this person who was under the power of satan god intervenes in their life god tinkers with their innermost being god changes them gives them a new heart gives them a new set of desires and god drives the devil out of their heart god by the power of his holy spirit brings life and so we see exorcisms when we see conversions we don't see exactly what was seen during the ministry of jesus But we're not walking in the physical presence of Jesus of Nazareth at this day, in this day. Jesus of Nazareth is not here in this day, at least in his incarnate body. Jesus is here by the power of his Holy Spirit. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures to preach. And the gospel accomplishes the purposes of God in setting people free from the power of Satan. And so Jesus comes... a great multitude he has apostles he has disciples he has a multitude and people are healed of their diseases and those troubled with unclean spirits are cured verse 19 of Luke chapter 6 and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all we really got to think about that at verse 19 In all of the ceremonial law, if any person touched something that was ceremonially unclean, in all Old Testament law, if any person touched anything that was ceremonially unclean, did the clean person clean the unclean or did the unclean make the clean unclean? The unclean always made the clean unclean. Turn to... The book of Haggai, chapter, chapter 2. It's only got two chapters and at verse 10. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius or Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So someone's got holy meat in their garment. What's holy meat? You've offered your sacrifice to the Lord and the priest has given you back your portion that you're now allowed to take back to your home and eat with your family. And so that is now holy meat. It's part of your worship. If someone carries holy meat, And he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Can the holy meat in the person's robe or garment make something else holy? And the answer? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. When someone who has been made unclean touches anything, whatever they touch becomes unclean. So that which is ceremonially holy cannot make the unclean holy, and that which is unclean can make that which was previously clean now unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now turn back to Luke chapter 6. And all the crowd sought to touch him. What should happen? In in the normal scheme of things, you know, Pharisee itself, the very word Pharisee means the set-apart ones, ones who set themselves apart, ones who divided themselves off from the world around them. That's what Pharisee literally means. What should happen if all the crowd seeks to touch him? If someone has a spot of leprosy, that which the Jews called leprosy, under the sleeve of their garment and touches Jesus, what should happen according to the law, according to that which they have been taught through the generations? Jesus becomes unclean. If someone who has been near to a dead body or an unclean beast, a starving peasant, a starving beggar, who eats something unclean because it was the only food they could lay their hand on. If that person comes near to Jesus and touches Jesus, what should happen? Jesus should be made unclean. And there are those who are troubled with unclean spirits. I mean, demons. Literally, wickedness is possessed and dominated their lives, but now they're seeking to be cured. You know, if... What's what's the scripture say about bad company? Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, I'm trusting that none of us here have close friends who are wicked, evil people dominated by evil spirits. I know we must live in the world. I know that we do have friends in the world. You know, my workplace is not a workplace filled with Christians. You know, I'm sure many of you, you have exactly the same experience. They come, the crowd seeks to touch him. And instead of Jesus becoming, as it were, unclean, instead of Jesus becoming, as it were, weak, instead of Jesus being influenced by the crowd, instead of him being infected by the crowd, to use a more modern term, power comes out from him and heals them all. And so at the start of the passage, I'm talking, I speak to you about The humanity of Christ, he goes to the mountaintop and he prays. And I say to you, if you want to think only of Jesus as divine, well, for what purpose does he pray? But now at the end of our passage that we're studying, I want to say to you now, look at what happens when divinity takes upon flesh, when the eternally begotten son of God takes, becomes incarnate, takes upon himself flesh and walks the earth. The power of God overcomes all comings. The power of God overcomes all uncleanness. There is nothing that can make God unclean. Nothing. Things can make you and I unclean one way or another. Our sins can stain our soul. And I don't have the power to grant to anyone here cleanness. And none of you have the power to grant to me cleanness. You know, the Apostle Paul says in, Romans chapter 7, I know that no good thing dwells within me. That is within my flesh. But this crowd can come to Jesus and go away cured, cleansed, set free, made holy, renewed. Think now about the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has power to do whatsoever God pleases. God has power to change the human heart. God has power to grant cleanness where once there was uncleanness. God has power to make people who were wicked servants of Satan, righteous servants of himself. God has that power. We serve an almighty, all-powerful God. And you know, we, we, we have a theological term for it and we explain it from the scriptures. We talk about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of being found righteous in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is given as a gift to the people of God. And speaking once again of the divinity of our Lord Jesus, he can give and never run short. I can give you something, but whatever I give you, I no longer have. And, you know, if I give you money, I'm short whatever amount I give to you. If I give you food out of the cupboard, well, the cupboard has now got less food in it. If I use my energy to in some way help you, I get tired. I have finite resources. I'm only a man. It's the same for all of you. You're only people. You're men, women, servants of Christ. When you give, you have less. Now, when we sleep, we might recover some of that energy. But ultimately, I can tell you, you know, I'm the oldest man in the room. And I can tell you, you don't say as strong as you always were. You know, you know, the effects of the world, the fact that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Eventually, it starts to wear you down. And the day comes when the heart stops beating and you go to face your God. Hopefully you die in Christ and you're coming, as it were, to your father and you want to be there with him. But Christ can gift his people with righteousness. His righteousness, his works, his goodness. His active obedience. You see, he did everything that the Father demanded of him. He did it perfectly. He did it from a pure heart. He did it in a way that you and I cannot do it. You know, I say to you, have you ever committed murder? I know you all. None of you have killed anyone. No, we haven't committed murder. So have you done that from a pure heart? You know what I mean? Have you ever hated anyone? Have you ever desired revenge? Have you ever thought someone was a stupid idiot? And if you've thought those, were, if you've thought those thoughts, if you've thought those thoughts, if they've run through your mind, doesn't Jesus say, that to consider your brother a fool, that to have the desire for revenge in your heart is to commit murder in your heart. But Jesus perfectly, totally, positively fulfilled the required law of God, the commandments of God. He did the works that God requires and he's able to clothe us in his righteousness and lose no righteousness of his own. He's not made less glorious than By giving the glory of righteousness to his people, he's actually made more glorious. God gives and becomes greater. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? This is the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the power of that divine son of God working through the flesh of that human son of God, being a son of David, being a son of the woman, the seed of the woman at work crushing, bruising, stepping upon the skull of the serpent. And so God ministers to his people through the Lord Jesus Christ and we see both the divinity and the humanity of our Saviour and both are necessary. We've got to always hold both in our hearts. We needed a man to be our man. We needed a man to do what we cannot do. I always tell you, you cannot be saved by works, but I always tell you, you are saved by works. Not our works, not my works, not your works. We're saved by the works of the Lord Jesus. He performed the works that God requires and he performed them on our behalf, purchasing us for God. And what we're reading about and what we've just studied is that same Lord Jesus doing everything in obedience to the will of God and in the business of purchasing salvation for sinners like you and I. Praise God for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our only hope and it's the only hope we've got to give the world around about us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that through our Saviour Jesus, we are considered to be your children. He's our saviour, he's our king, he's our priest, he's our older brother, he's our friend. And he has brought us into your presence, clothed in his own fine robes. What a wonderful gift has been given to us that we have been set free from the power of darkness and brought into the power of light, that we have been set free from the power of Satan and brought into the power of God. Father in heaven, may we go out into the world this coming week with joy in our hearts and thankfulness in our hearts. Father, may we be given opportunity to share the good news and may we be given by the power of your Holy Spirit the courage to take every opportunity. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.